0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org.
1: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. If you would, take your Bible and turn there with me. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 8 to 10. The scripture says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning. I hope everybody is doing well today. Uh, As Jonathan said, if you don't know me, my name is Peyton Ford, uh, and I'm one of the elders at Shades. It's certainly an honor for me to bring the word this morning, Uh, although to be fair, it was a little surprising when the other elders let me know that I'd volunteered to preach. Um, Volunteered. So you know that scene in any TV show where the character is trying to figure out who that guy is who's being talked about? Um, in my head, that's always how that night in the uh, in the conference room is going to be. So we're, we're talking through the upcoming series and Brad's saying that we need two elders to preach and that Joe Corey's already volunteered. And all of a sudden, all at once, everybody turns and looks in my direction. So. Naturally, I turn around to see who on earth they're talking about or looking at, and the weirdest thing happened. There was nobody behind me, and (laughs) I looked down at the schedule, and my name is already there, so I'm not quite sure how that happened. I guess the Spirit volunteered me, Um, but regardless, it's my joy to be able to go through the Scripture with you this morning. Uh, If you have not, I do invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, and we'll begin again in verse eight. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So If you've been here for the first two sermons in this series, uh, you will have heard and know that Brad and Joe were both influenced by Russell Moore's book, Tempted and Tried Temptation and the Triumph of Christ. Spoiler alert, we shared materials, and uh, I read it too, and I was very uh, influenced by it as well. Uh, One of the pictures that I found particularly moving, uh, and Brad talked about this quite a bit in his sermon, is this idea that Satan's not just some random force of evil. Uh, Rather, he's a being of significant intelligence and patience who's working to cultivate prey, and he's had millennia of practice tempting and leading humans astray. Now, I don't say this to give him more credit than he's due, uh, but it is important to recognize the pattern that he operates in. Uh, When he tempts mankind as a whole and us individually, the pattern that we're given is that he does so patiently, incrementally, and over the long haul, all while doing his best to make sure that we can't discern the wide road of destruction that we're walking down. And it's with this idea of incrementality in mind that I want to draw our attention to the crescendo that's going on in the narrative of the text. So as we've gone through these temptations one per week, it can can be easy to lose track of kind of the rapid pace that's going on here and the immediacy um, and kind of the build in the text. And what I want to keep in mind is that most likely this all happened one after the other extremely quickly. So temptation and triumph, temptation and triumph, temptation and triumph. Um, Each of the temptations build on each other. Uh, They're not discrete occurrences. Uh, And this entire sequence is integrated, and it culminates in this final temptation. And so we're going to start with the big picture, right? So what is the issue that's going on in Jesus temptation? And we're going to zoom into the specific temptation that's being placed in front of him. And just to be clear, in case anybody's wondering, the main storyline here, like the rest of the Bible, is God. Uh, And how he should be rightly worshiped by those whose identity is in him. And I want to focus on that word identity. We're going to use it a lot today. Uh, All of Christ's interactions with the enemy in this passage have been leading to this moment. Satan began by tempting Christ towards self gratification, he moved to self protection, and he's now culminating with a temptation towards self exaltation. It is a little counterintuitive to claim that the temptation to worship Satan is a temptation towards self-exaltation, but just trust me, we'll get there. Uh, And I'll be honest, when I found out the text that I was going to be preaching on, I joked with Brad and Jonathan that this could easily be the shortest sermon ever. Basically, don't worship Satan. Okay, let's all go get lunch. Good job. (laughs) Uh, But in all seriousness, let's go ahead and address that. Scripture is quite clear that devil worship is not limited to explicit Satanism, right? You don't have to join the church of Satan to worship Satan. Uh, Rather, Scripture shows us that idolatry, the placement of anything other than God as the object of our worship, is demonic worship. All the way back in Genesis 3, the narrative of the fall is clear that the root of the issue is not that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. But the issue is that they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be their own gods. If we look in Genesis 3, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So it's this urge toward idolatry that's the original sin that we're all infected with. We all have this urge to make our own gods. Uh, If we fast forward to the wilderness in Deuteronomy uh, 32, uh, chapter 32, verses 16 to 17, we see how this played out in the wilderness uh, as Moses is preparing to die, he summarizes Israel's wanderings, and he details uh, the issues with idolatry in this way, uh, Deuteronomy 32:16. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. If we go even further forward in the New Covenant, in 1 Corinthians 10, 18-21, Paul will instruct the Corinthian church against participating in pagan feasts, so they are not participants in the altar of demons. Chapter 10, verse 18 in 1 Corinthians, "'Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then?' that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So while these examples that we just talked about are related to physical idol worship, The concept is the same for any idol that we create for ourselves. Uh, Any anti-Christ that we choose to treasure and worship over God is demonic worship of an idol. Uh, Sex, money, political power, um, anything. Now, as I say that, I want to make sure and give a word that we aren't running to forsake the things of this world as evil. Um, There's a term for that. It's called Gnosticism, and the early church fathers already put that to bed for us. They already had that debate. Uh, So what we would affirm is that while the world is broken, we wouldn't go so far as to say that everything in the world that's physical is evil. What we would affirm is that there are good things in this world. It's when our priorities are incorrect that they become sinful. The issue with our pursuit of things in this world much like Adam and Eve's original sin, is not that the things in and of themselves are evil, it's that when our pursuit of and desire for them supplants our pursuit of and desire for God, that they become idols, idols of demonic worship. Now, having said all that, how does Satan follow this pattern with Christ? and he does it through an attempted perversion of Christ's inheritance. So in preparation, it's difficult for us today in today's world to fully grasp the significance of inheritance in the ancient Near East. Uh, To our modern ears, the story of Jacob and Esau doesn't hit in quite the same manner that it would in the first century. Um, And so I find Russell Moore's explanation helpful here, Uh, and he says, inheritance was the basic engine of family solidarity and economic survival. Your father worked not only to provide his children with the basic needs for living, but also to hand over that living and that occupation to those children when they were ready for it. His farmland, fishing boat, carpenter's tools, all of that would be his children's one day. You would work your whole life to hand something down to your children. So, in the context and the culture that Matthew is written into, inheritance was not some checklist, uh, not some item on a checklist for rich people, right? Make sure that my wealth lasts lasts past my generation. Um, It was literally the way that the father gave the best that he had to his children. And let's look again, verses 8 and 9 of our text, to see how Satan tries to pervert this. So, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus already knew from the Father that he would receive all power, all glory, all authority at the end of days. And there are ample examples of this in Scripture, just a couple. Psalm 2, 7 to 8 is a promise from God to David regarding the promised anointed one. Verse 7, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." Psalm 110.1 is a promise that God himself will ensure the rule of Christ. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So if Christ knew this, this begs the question, how is Satan's offer temptation? If Jesus knew that he would receive all authority, all kingdoms, all power in due time, Why would Satan think that he would be tempted by this offer? So, I don't know how many of you are in the midst of trying to convince children to eat what you make for dinner. Um, Just in case you are wondering, or you uh, have forgotten for some reason, it's really, really hard. Uh, Literally every parent here and watching knows what I'm talking about. They're just so irrational, right? Like, how can you not like something if you have never tried it? And, I, you know, sometimes in our house, that fight is just, it's just not worth it. And so, right, before we even start to talk about what dinner is, somebody has the idea, what if we just did Chick-fil-A tonight and we didn't have to fight and get them to eat? And... It's such a... Now, hear my heart, right? I love Chick-fil-A. I think it's great. It, it does constantly amaze me that somebody's been able to convince all of us that fried chicken is somehow healthier than the rest of fast food, but that's a different point. <laughs> so it's just so much easier. We don't have to fight, and we know it's not necessarily good for the kids, Right? It's good because we don't have to fight with them, and then you know everybody goes to bed happy. But we know that it's not as nutritious as if we made them dinner. And the temptation for Christ is much the same. Is he going to go through hard work for ultimate exaltation and what the Father has told him is good? Or is he going to succumb to the temptation for instant gratification, something he doesn't have to work for? And the temptation for Christ much like our temptation is in the immediacy. So before we're tempted to dismiss this, his temptation as weak or easy for Christ to overcome, let's think about this for just a minute. Christ knew full well what he would have to go through on the cross. He knew in advance all the pain, all the suffering, all the ostracization that was coming his way once he left the wilderness and began his ministry. More specifically, he knew who he was going to go through all that for. He would have to go through all of this, which he did not deserve for you and for me. Us, rebels who broke his good creation and whose every inclination is toward darkness— Us, who deserve nothing but God's righteous and loving judgment and removal from his good creation through death. But, but, the will of the Father was that the Son would go through the cross to redeem all that we had broken. What Satan is offering to Christ is an early inheritance, or at least a twisted shadow of it without having to go through any pain, any suffering, that Christ didn't deserve. He's in essence saying to Jesus, you deserve so much better than this. You're worth so much more. If God really knew how valuable you were, he wouldn't ask you to go through this. So, I told you we'd get here eventually. The true temptation here is not worship of Satan explicitly. It's for Christ to believe that he is more valuable than the place that the Father has willed for him in the redemption story. And in doing so, to exalt himself and place his will in place of the Father's, creating his own idol. As is the enemy's... Oop, that page got stuck. As is the enemy's pattern, Christ has offered a demonic idolatrous alternative that offers instant gratification rather than requiring him to wait for the fulfillment of the Father's promises. But Jesus refused to exchange ultimate exaltation by the Father for the immediate exaltation of a snake. As verse 10 tells us, "'Then Jesus said to him, "'Be gone, Satan.'" For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This attempt by the enemy to poison the relationships of God's children with God by corrupting their identity is nothing new. In fact, I would say that this is the pattern that the enemy has operated in since the garden. If we consider some other high mountains, throughout redemptive history, we find a depressingly constant pattern of idolatrous failure by the people of God. Throughout this series specifically, we've talked about how Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness mirror Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert. So with that in mind, let's talk about just how long Israel made it as the covenanted people of God without idolatry issues. If you remember, in Exodus 24 we see the Mosaic Covenant confirmed and at the conclusion of the narrative there, we're told, verse 18 of Exodus 24, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In Scripture, the next seven chapters are devoted to the instructions that Moses receives from the Lord. But Literally, the very next mention of Israel is the story of the golden calf. So if we look in Exodus 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Israel hasn't even had time as the covenant people of God to go anywhere before they're creating and worshiping idols. Like, they haven't even moved. They're in the same spot. Unlike Christ, they trade waiting on the fullness of God's promises, in this case, the return of Moses from Mount Sinai with the word of God, for the immediate exaltation of the snake, creation of the golden calf. They forget their identity quickly. But how often can the same thing be said of you and me? In what ways do we trade the ultimate exaltation of God for the immediate exaltation of the snake? Growing up, my dad would always say that once you boil it down, there are two things that make up the overwhelming majority of marital disagreements. Money and sex. I'll be honest. Caitlin and I will be married for nine years this June, and he is 100% right. Um, Tangent. Teenagers, kids, anyone here. Your parents are right. Listen to them. It's better for you. They love you. Uh, Sorry, coming back. So let's think on money briefly. Uh, Maybe the most often misquoted verse in the entire Bible, 1 Timothy 6 9 to 10, starting in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the Father and pierced themselves with many pangs." The idea of losing everything actually valuable by chasing money is so common, Um, there are an untold number of stories, movies, literature, any sort of media, you name it, where this is the central plot line. You know, everyone knows the ones I'm talking about, right? So, career-obsessed man works 80-hour weeks, and halfway through the movie, his wife and kids leave him, then he gets fired. But luckily, always in time to realize the error of his ways and reorient his priorities so that there's a a great ending. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen in real life. And even as we know, right, we know these tropes, we know how common this is in culture, we know how tempting it is, it's still so tempting to idolize money. It still is. And what happens when this idol turns out to be empty what happens when any idol turns out to be empty? The enemy's there. He's there to offer another shortcut to glory. Only the glory of each thing that he offers turns out to be ashes. We forget our identity quickly. I don't know what your specific idolatrous temptation is. Maybe it is money, um, maybe it's sex. Maybe it's political power. Maybe it's something else. Whatever it is, the Word of God has good news for you. God did not forget his identity, and he will not forget yours. So what was different about Christ's identity that made him able to withstand temptation? After all, Hebrews 4.15 would tell us he was tempted just as severely as anything we face, Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the answer is the Trinity. Jesus Christ, as God the Son, was able to withstand the temptation to self-exaltation. Temptation to self-exaltation, temptation to self-exaltation because he was, is, and will always be perfectly joined to God the Father by God the Spirit. He cannot forget his identity. Jesus Christ chooses us, you, me, rebels and destroyers over himself in the wilderness and ultimately at the cross because it is his delight by the Spirit of God to make much of the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news. The same God who did not spare himself in the wilderness or on the cross also dwells in you. It is the great joy of the Holy Spirit of God to mold and shape us into the image of the Son of God for the glory of God the Father. So while we will always undoubtedly fail, regularly, know that the same eternal perfect identity is in you. And that identity is what empowers us to conquer temptation toward immediate gratification in the same way that Christ did. I won't try to say it better than Paul. Listen to Romans 8, 16 to 17. No good sermon can go on without Romans 8, right? Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was empowered by the Holy Spirit to act out of his identity as the Son of God, you too are empowered by that same Spirit to act out of your identity as a child of God. And what's more, this all has a point. It has a conclusion. We're told Jesus Christ will receive his full inheritance from the Father on the day of days. Satan, sin, and death will be cast out and creation will be fully redeemed. The same inheritance that God the Son will receive is extended to us through our receipt of God the Spirit. We just heard from Romans 8 that the Spirit of God testifies to our identifi- identity as co-heirs with Christ, and Luke 32 explicitly makes the connection between Christ's promise, inheritance, and ours. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Believer, like Christ, the enemy will tell you that you deserve so much better than this, that you're worth more, that if God knew how valuable you really were, he wouldn't ask you to go through this, whatever this is. But hear this, whatever glory the enemy is offering, it's nothing but ashes, and you are worth so much more than that. Brothers and sisters, hear this. This is the identity that the Holy Spirit of God confirms. You are a child of the Most High God. You are loved by the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Father has set out the best that he has as an an inheritance for you. The best that he has is himself, and he is coming. Amen.